Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to Swarfcast. Before we start, we have a quick favor to ask you. If you love the show, please rate it and write a review on your podcast app. Or tell somebody about it. It really makes a difference for us, and we'd appreciate it. Okay, on with the show. Instead of forcing a customer to buy a more expensive bike with a super fancy frame, what I wanted to do was say, we're going to take our fancy frame, we're going to give it fancy parts, we're going to raise the price on that one, and then we're going to import a frame, but we're still going to do all the assembly here, we're going to do all the wheel building here, and we're just going to drive costs down and actually try to be cheaper than our competitors by using only the domestic advantages. This is Swarfcast. I'm Noah Graff. Here with my co-host Lloyd Graff. On today's podcast, we're talking bicycles. Our guest is Zach Pashik, founder of Detroit Bikes, the largest bicycle frame manufacturer in the United States. The frames of the company's highest-end bicycles are produced with American chromoloy steel, and every bicycle Detroit Bikes produces is assembled in Detroit. Today's podcast is brought to you by Graff Pinkert. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graffpinkert.com. That's www.graffpinkert.com. Welcome to the podcast, Zach. Hey, thanks. Um, well, first, just tell us uh, in a nutshell what your company is, Detroit Bikes. We are the country's largest bike frame manufacturer by size and volume. Um, we also do assembly work here. We do wheel building and packaging. Um, so we have sort of a number of different customers that we work for, and we, we also have a brand of our own called Detroit Bikes. Okay. And... Give us a, your story. You you came from uh, Canada? Yeah, I moved here to Detroit and well, first visited in 2010, bought my house in 2011. And my background was in a few different things, but mostly in music. But also um, through that, I got really interested in municipal politics. I just interacted a lot with my local city council in Calgary and had some interactions in Vancouver with, with their city council and their mayor and just got kind of interested in that scene and started studying urban planning, and transportation, and kind of how cities were changing, how we sort of maybe built to be a little bit more accommodating for cars than for just people and sort of had sacrificed some things for the sake of automobile transportation. Um, and the cities kind of across the world were realizing that that wasn't the best way to do things. And so I saw the start of a wave coming of just a change in how people live in major cities. So we're seeing it, you know, in in Chicago, you've got the Divi bikes and 
bike lanes going in. And I think, you know, some people might think that that's kind of as far as it will go, but I really think we're just on the, on the front end of that. And so I, I thought, uh, a nice way to get involved in the middle of this movement would be to, to make a product that was made for that type of cycling. If you walk into your average bike store, they're going to try to steer you towards sports cycling, um, probably, or, you know, like mountain biking or racing. And there weren't a lot of, at least North American shops, very focused on just, you know, bikes to get around town. So I thought, wouldn't that be cool if in a comeback city, we made bikes for this kind of change in cities and, uh, and could have just a really great, um, you know, American urban brand, you know, that, that was authentic and made here. So, okay. So you chose Detroit because it was sort of a counterintuitive place. Um, it, well, what, so what did you do? Did you did you just like like have a several cities and you were just kind of like um, Chicago, Detroit, L.A.? Well, not not quite. So I wanted to move to Detroit first and foremost. And the idea for the company um, kind of came along with that in in that it was sort of in an area that I was interested in. Um, but I, I wasn't in Calgary and decided, you know, I'm going to pick a U.S. city to make bikes in. It was more, I was in Calgary and I was like, I want to see what's going on in Detroit. I got to Detroit and, you know, it was this really different place with a lot of challenges, but a ton of opportunities as well and some really excellent people, excellent history. And so I thought, if I'm going to be involved in this city, maybe one of the areas for me to look is manufacturing. There's a good skill set here. For, for manufacturing and um and so that you know the company kind of came from there so this is lloyd why detroit well why why was i interested in detroit in the first place it, it was because yeah um because i was so interested in cities and you know this the history of kind of what went wrong in in, in cities to some degree in terms of our planning mistakes um but also, you know, the history of Detroit's incredible. The city is amazing. It, there's, you know, probably four or five different genres of music that were invented in this city. The car came out of this city, you know, tons of inventions. It's a pretty interesting place. And it's, it's just, uh, you know, when I visited, there were businesses that had, you know, been through all this strife, you know, and, and were still on their feet. And the people in those businesses were just different, you know, just, you know, I could move to some suburban place in California or something. And I'm sure everyone's pretty happy out there and has a good quality of life. And, you know, but that's not, that's not what I was looking for. I was, I'm kind of interested in a challenge and being part of um, kind of positive change, I guess. So Detroit was sort of it just, a, personally, it was just a great fit for me. And it's been a heck of a run. You know, the city's just been going under an incredible transformation. Right. When did you arrive? 2010. And where did you get the seed money to begin the project? I had some businesses in Canada. I got into the bar business in my early 20s, and I opened a very successful uh, music venue in downtown Calgary. And then I expanded to a, a venue in Vancouver that was also quite successful, and then started a music festival. Um, and I, you know, through that, I was able to acquire some real estate along the way. And when I moved down here to the U.S., it was at a, one of those random times where the Canadian dollar is actually worth more than the U.S. dollar. I was able to sell all my all my Canadian assets. I just sold everything I had, and uh, and used that money to start Detroit bikes. And what made you think that you could 
be a success in manufacturing coming from the music business and the uh, bar business? Lloyd, it's a great question. I, I guess extreme hubris might be the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You know, I, I, the festival I started in Calgary was pretty challenging. You know, we had 350 to 400 bands playing in 40 different venues in a city that wasn't exactly known for being interested in, you know, the alternative music that I was, you know, bringing up. So I was able to kind of create a subculture. Um, and I was able to do something that people thought was impossible to do. And so I guess I thought maybe there's, you know, maybe I'm, I can bring some skill set to this that, that it, it's not necessarily because I'm a great manufacturer, but, you know, I'm able to persevere. I'm able to go through challenging things. I'm able to identify a good team and try to assemble a good team and then figure out what I need to do to get them what they need. Um, that said, you know, this has not been easy at all. And it would have been uh, less challenging if I had a manufacturing background. That said, if I had a manufacturing background, I probably wouldn't have, um, you know, funneled out into a position to, to be able to do this. I'd probably be working for, you know, a manufacturing company. Um, <laughs> yeah. Very interesting. Do you consider yourself um, a techie, a technical person? Not in the least bit. No, I, I've, I've had to, I've, I've had to learn a lot, but um, you know, in the early days of the company, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have really been able to even assemble one of my own company's bikes. You know, I didn't, I, it wasn't about like, I didn't, I tell people, I didn't say that it was like Zach Pashik bike company, you know, it's, it's Detroit bikes and it's the people here making the bikes and the skill set and the engineering of the people here. So my job was really just to identify some people who were capable and then put them together and encourage them to, to get the, the thing done, you know, with some direction. That said, you know, now it's different. Like today I'm working on our production floor and helping, you know, keep the pace going as quickly as possible. And, and I, I find that, uh, you know, that stuff, it's not as hard as it seemed to me because I've kind of been around it for quite a while now. So um, I'm, it's starting to kind of seep in. Zach, what's the value proposition with your bike? For a customer? Yes. Well, it's a, it's a bike that's made for a certain type of customer. So where I was talking about that experience of going to a bike store and, and sort of being sold a mountain bike or a, um, a racing bike or something like that, those bikes are made very specifically for those purposes. And they're not really the best bikes to use just as, you know, if you want to go to the grocery store or something like that. So part of the value proposition is, Hey, this is a bike designed for this purpose of, you know, using your, your city bike lanes or, or whatever. Um, then also it's a bike with a really interesting story. So, you know, ba basically all of our competitors are, are buying their bikes from China, from China or Taiwan, and they're coming in, you know, in packages, they're already assembled. All the work is done overseas. And so, so, you know, it's a bike with a bit of a different story behind it. And then also if you're interested in the material your bike is made from, and I know not, not a lot of customers are, but we're using American chromoly steel and it's just an incredible material to make a bike out of. And so that's a little more kind of lofty. It's not my, my real vision for the company is we, we need to get more people on bikes. So we want to hit the best price point we can while still having something that's going to last people a long time to so give a lifetime warranty on all of our frames, but it's a little excessive. You know, the material we use is a bit more than what we probably need to for this bike, 
But if you're into that material, it's, it's really good stuff. So we buy it from a company called Plymouth and it's their pro Molly line. It's used in race cars and aircraft. And although you might not, you know, have the technical knowledge of chromoly steel to, when you're buying the bike, what our customers do notice is that they feel fantastic. So when you actually ride the bike, it is a very pleasant experience. And and that is a testament to the material we're using. It, it feels more like solid from the typical bicycle or? Well, so because chromoly is so strong, you can use a thinner wall thickness in your tubing. So it creates a bike that has a little bit of almost elasticity to it. So it's like, it's, it's rigid, but flexible at the same time, if that makes any sense. It just, it's almost like it has okay, a, okay. a, a built-in kind of energy to it. Like when you, you kind of hop on the bike, it almost feels like it's riding itself. And as I have seen your uh, promos and your videos, which by the way, are very well done. Oh, thank you. It appears your bike is aimed at an adult audience yes. rather than a kid's audience. Is that correct? Yeah, definitely. Um, people do associate bicycles with kids, but uh, I think that's changing. I think um, plenty of adults can enjoy can enjoy a bicycle still. Where do you get most of your components? You know, I mean, our our audience they're in the turn parts business. So, yeah, um, are you getting most of them overseas, or are you getting a lot of them also in the Detroit area? Oh, I wish I'd love that. Um, it's, it's actually a big, a big challenge to try to onshore an industry that left a country is that, you know, you're kind of on an Island, you know, whereas my, my competitor frame factories in China have all their parts suppliers all right around them. So if something's, you know, not fitting or they want to have a conversation, they can just go down the street and talk to the people, you know, at the, at the factory that makes their hubs we don't have that luxury. You know, all, all my sourcing factories are in Asia. They're in Taiwan or in China. And so that engineering expertise doesn't really exist in the U S um, there are a handful of, you know, engineers who know about bike stuff, but they're kind of spread across the country and they're typically like consultants. And do you think we could find them anybody? Then? Well, uh, we could connect you with our, uh, one of the other people who we adver- uh, who we talked to in the podcast who makes, hubs for the horseless carriage industry yeah for the amish wow that's interesting carriage driven by horses right yeah i mean we we know a lot of people that yeah that might be able to uh you know if you if you gave us the exact parts you needed we may be able to find somebody domestic that would that would be able to do it how does it make you feel uh just this concept of um, making something in the United States, uh, is, is that the most important thing to you or, or just getting more people in bikes? The most important thing is or getting is more it, people is it in environmental. Bikes. It's uh, the U S story was meant to be a bit of a challenge to the status quo to give us a little bit of a more interesting backstory than some of our competitors might have. Well, I think than all of them have, um, and also it's ironic uh, you being Canadian and it's yeah. economic patriotism. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is interesting, I guess. But I mean, I like the United States a lot too. And Canada and the U S are pretty, pretty similar countries and good, good partners, good allies historically. Yeah. I mean, American apparel was run by a Canadian too. <laughs> uh, oh, that's right. Yeah. Um, but I mean, the idea is just that it's, it's not even about nationality. Like it, it's not like, 
rah-rah Americanism so much as just like local culture, the idea of things from your own community. You know, that's become a pretty popular idea in a lot of different areas. And I think it's starting to happen a little bit more in products as well. And I think it's really good when that happens. I think it's really cool when there's a factory down the street from you that makes a product that you're going to interact with. For sure. Um, I think we kind of, we, we lose out a little bit as a society when we just chase the cheapest possible thing and we ship it from across the world. You know, I think we, we lose a little bit of, well, we lose a lot of stuff for that, including the quality of that product. But uh, also even just the shipping, the waste. You know, we ship something like 36 million wheels a year from China already assembled. That's a lot of air. Wow. You know, we don't, not, not us personally, I'm just saying the country, like 36 million assembled wheels, all, the, all that air is, you know, there's the, lots of pollution being generated to transfer that. And there's no reason we can't assemble wheels here. It's done by machine. So the argument that it's cheaper to do it in China is not true. It's just that people, American companies just wanted to wash their hands of, of, of doing the hard stuff and, and just kind of count on someone else to do that. And because of that, like with the bike industry, bikes are really boring, you know, all, like I can list off all, all the other companies out there, but like they're all buying their bikes basically from the same factory. Like they look the same that we have. It's not, it's, I, I equate it to the beer industry a little bit, you know, like 15 years ago, you could walk into a bar, you'd probably be able to choose between Miller and Bud. Um, and that was it. <laughs> You know, and look at what's look at what's happened now. You know, most bars you go into, it's like a hundred beers, and you know, at least half of them are from from the state you're in, um, and and people know even what city they came from and who made them in that city and why they're making them that way. And because of that, we have some incredible beer options out there. Um, bikes, of course, That's are an interesting analogy. Yeah, very yeah. good. So bikes are a different product. Me, you, you know, uh, you, you don't yeah. buy four of them in a night. You you know, you buy one maybe every four years, but at the same time, wouldn't that be great if people, you know, had that same interest in, in the origin of, of some, some of the other consumer goods out there rather than just the consumables. Listeners, do you have an idea for a future episode of Swarfcast or is your company interested in advertising on the Swarfcast podcast? If so, please send us an email at swarfcastpodcast at gmail.com. That's swarfcastpodcast at gmail.com. Let me ask you, I read where Giant uh, is complaining, the world's largest bike company is complaining about uh, the tariffs on uh, bicycle components and bicycles uh, coming into the U.S., now, um, has uh, that affected you on buying components? Has it driven your prices up? Uh, we haven't changed our pricing at all. Um, it has some impact, but a, a much lower impact than it does on on the other companies. Because the tariff, the tariff on a complete bicycle is 36% now, but the parts aren't all at 36%. So everyone else is just buying a complete bicycle paying that 36% on everything. So for example, like when we manufacture the frame, we've seen no impact on the tariffs other than that our steel prices have gone up a little bit because American steel producers were able to raise their prices because their competition, had, you know, had a tariff on it now, but it has, it wasn't all that significant. Mm -hmm. And what it really does is it allows us to really make an argument to some larger potential customers out there that domestic assembly makes sense 
you know, instead of them buying it 100% down in China or Taiwan, in this case, China, I guess, would be the, the, the country impacted by the tariffs. But, you know, it makes sense instead by CKD. So in our industry, that's complete knockdown. I don't know if that's in other industries too, but by CKD instead, send us just all the parts and boxes and we, we put them all together here and you can get a lower average tariff. So the tariffs helped me because they hurt my competitors more than they hurt me, if, if that makes any sense. Well, and who are your competitors? I mean, you're making a product that isn't, say, directly competitive with with many of the uh, Chinese bikes, are you, or, or am I wrong? So our competitors, I refer to my competitors two different ways, and I interchange them, so it might be confusing. But in some regards, my competitors are the other U.S., you know, quote-unquote bike brands. So that'd be like Public, Linus, Brooklyn Bicycle Company, um, some, some of the other brands that are kind of smaller but selling city-focused bikes. And then my other competitors, though, are the Chinese frame factories that those brands buy their bikes from. Because we could also make bikes for Linus or Public or Brooklyn Bicycle Company um, if they wanted to buy a U.S.-made product. Um, and so, could, do you mind actually repeating your question that led to me explaining about the competitors? Yes, I'm curious, making a city bike aimed at adults who you regard as direct competitors. Right. So that's on the, that would be a brand competitor question. And I would say that those would be some, some of those companies I listed off there would be, would be mm -hmm. those, those brand competitors. And then what, so what we do to compete with them is that we, you know, for what I realized about a year or two ago was that I was basically forcing my customer to buy a, a, an average bike, like a good, but average, you know, nothing flashy bike, but with a really high quality frame. And so the price was about a hundred to 150 bucks more than anyone else in the category, but it was us made and had this really good frame, but the bike stores never talk about frame. They only talk about component spec because they don't want to talk about frame. They don't want to talk about the frame origin. Mm -hmm. And also the nuance between different types of steel kind of loses some of the customers too. They think steel is, is like the lowest form and then aluminum and then carbon fiber. And like, that's the hierarchy, but that's entirely not the case. Uh -huh. But anyways, it's just a bit more nuanced. So, so steel is heavier well, than aluminum. Well, there's, there's not different, necessarily different types of steel. Bike. So the uh, steel is also a lot stronger than aluminum. And so you need to use a lot more aluminum on the bikes. There are some aluminum bikes out there that weigh 55 pounds. Um, you know, it, it mm -hmm. just, it just depends on, you know, I guess your design, but, so what I was trying to explain was just that um, I had that sort of realization that I'm forcing my customer to buy this premium frame when they don't really understand what the premium frame is or why they would want it. And the bike stores aren't going to be able to get that message across. So what I had to think about was, well, so what are the advantages to domestic production and what can I pull in that is only advantageous? Mm -hmm. So I know that, it doesn't make sense to ship fully built wheels from, from China. I have a wheel building machine because I invested in all this stuff. So at least we should do all the wheel building here. Um, I, final assembly makes sense to do in the States because we can ship CKD and we can avoid some of the tariffs. So, so I just tried to pull out like, instead of forcing a customer to buy a more expensive bike with a super fancy frame, what I wanted to do is say, we're going to take our fancy frame. We're going to give it fancy parts. We're going to raise the price on that one. 
and then we're going to import a frame, but we're still going to do all the assembly here. We're going to do all the wheel building here, and we're just going to drive costs down and actually try to be cheaper than our competitors by using only the domestic advantages. So we have a split. How much are they? So we have a bike that's two ninety nine called the Sparrow, but it has free shipping on our website. So when you buy it online, it's three ninety nine because we have to factor in about a hundred bucks to ship a bike across the country. And then the high end ones with the steel bodies made in the U- the steel frames made in the U.S. So those are twelve fifty. Twelve fifty. Okay. And I noticed on your website you have a Zingerman's limited edition bike. Well, we're big fans of Zingerman's. Can you, can you <laughs> explain that? Yeah. So we basically one of the advantages to domestic production is that we can do small runs of custom stuff. So whereas you know you're not going to call up a Chinese factory and say I want ten you know custom bikes, they're they're not going to answer the phone. And the type of company that wants ten of something wouldn't really know who to contact even because you kind of have to set up a global supply chain to kind of even you know be be in that conversation. So what we're able to do is we're able to do small batches of custom bikes. And that's been a, a big part of our, of our kind of bottom line over the past few years. So we make little, little runs of bikes for hotels and, you know, mm-hmm. local law cool. firms and real estate developers. And so part of that was also that I love doing Michigan partnerships Our, you know, I want to sell bikes all around the world, uh, and especially all around the U S you know, where you know, you're saving some money on shipping. So you don't need to ship it across the world to get here. Um, that said, our best customers have been Michigan and, you know, the Michigan diaspora is kind of like our, our home base crowd. So we'll get emails from people in Florida who like ordered a Detroit bike cause they're, and they want to tell me like what street they grew up on and all that stuff. And mm-hmm. they're just, Interesting. you know, they're proud of the city. So, so part of that is like any, any Michigan company that's sort of well-known and out there, I try to see if we can find a way to collaborate a bit. And Zingerman certainly fits the bill. We do stuff with Fago, which is a local soda brand. Right. Uh, we do stuff with the slow roll. We've partnered with some schools around here and different hotels. And Have you exported? Yeah, we export right now. I'm actually working on a, on a deal with Japan. Um, but that would be for our, just for our designed bikes. Unfortunately, actually the shipping stuff from the States as an export, I haven't found a way to make that math work for anyone yet. Um, because we, we still have to import parts from Asia. So you like to send parts to the U S to put them on a bike to ship back to Asia. Doesn't really make a lot of sense to ship a big, container full of frames over there um it's pretty cost prohibitive you know there's a lot what of about a country like holland that you know has so many bicyclists that that is a, a really good question and it you know it would be potentially a great market because those are the types of bikes i'm making too it's for that type of cyclist you know with that kind of access to cycling infrastructure um but the thing is the european union put really aggressive tariffs on china many years ago and they were actually able to retain their bike industry. So Europe has a bike industry and yeah. uh, um, shipping bikes from here to there, it also becomes pretty cost prohibitive. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not a competitive product once it gets over there. I'd be curious if there'd be a certain allure from the United States, uh, certain romanticism, but yeah, I'm sure it's a cutthroat 
competition. I, you know, I've been hoping, I've been, I've been hoping for that, you know, that some distributor would contact me. I, what I need to do is spend some time at a trade show over there called Eurobike and just see if there's a distributor who might be interested in, Amer- in an American mm. product. And you sell mostly via the web? Well, yeah, under our brand, it's probably 50-50, the web and our retail store downtown in Detroit. And uh-huh. then we're in 100 different shops across the country. Um, but uh, th- those sales aren't, uh, aren't as robust as, as I think they should be. And then the main, the main sales for us, though, are the OEM stuff. So it's contract work. It's these custom fleets. It's assembly jobs for other companies. Really? That's where you get a lot of your, your money from? Huh. Yeah. This is a, a fascinating business plan, Zach. And thank you so much for sharing it. What else would you like to tell us before we end this interview? Uh, what would I like to tell you? Well, I get, I have a little rant I like to tell people lately, but I don't know if it relates to manufacturing, but it's just about, um, mobility. So there's a lot of interest around Detroit and mobility, the conversations about, you know, how transportation is going to change. And so we have mobility startups and they're always doing it like it's autonomous vehicles or e-bikes or, you know, bike share, things like that. Like, you know, Uber type stuff, you know, drones, kind of tech tech stuff like the, and I, and I think that the mindset is that some new product is going to change the way we get around and we're just waiting for, you know, some, some company to come up with the next new product. And I really think that we need to think a little bit differently about mobility. Mobility issues are really much more strongly tied to infrastructure investments than they are to corporate product innovation. Um, and so mm. what we need mm. to see if we're going to see a change in, in mobility isn't, you know, waiting for the next, you know, Silicon Valley startup to, to come into our city. It's, it's, we need our cities to make investments in, in infrastructure specifically, you know, I, I think bike lanes are really important. I think trains are important, you know, just different ways for people to get around. So I think we kind of, it's like, we, we all know that change is coming, that, you know, people won't own internal combustion cars. We won't have individual ownership of com- internal combustion cars in 20 years. But if we sit back and wait for Ford to solve that problem for us, you know, or, or you know, to drive that change, I think we're going to be, you know, so- sorely disappointed. So I would, I'd, I'd like to try to get that message out there to people. Thank you so much, Zach. Hey, my, my pleasure. Th- thanks for having me on.